you have forgotten um, where we were, um, that's the text that we're in this morning. And it's so good to be with you all this first Sunday of Advent. Advent in the on the in the church's calendar historically. Um, so the evangelical church isn't really too good at following what has been the traditional church calendar for centuries and even millennia. Um, it, it hasn't been until more recently that you start seeing more evangelical churches recognizing things like Advent or Holy Week, right, or things like this. Advent basically is the four Sundays before Christmas Eve. Um, so, so you just mark on the calendar when it, wherever Christmas Eve wherever Christmas Eve lands, you just mark four Sundays prior to that. So today is the f- four Sunday, the fourth Sunday of Advent. Um, and traditionally, you'll see a, a, a candle set like this, and, f- and I'm just doing this for those of you who might not know what these things symbolizes. Um, each Sunday of Advent, you light a different candle, and all candles end up, at, by the end, by Christmas Eve, you, you light the center white one. And they all represent something that um, is in particular a, a great um, blessing and promise that has occurred to humanity because of the coming of Christ. So the first candle that we lit this morning is the hope candle. And as we continue throughout the weeks, there's peace, joy, love, and the center one, the white one, is purity. And we'll be doing that one on Christmas Eve. I, I just hope, too, that if, if you haven't gotten one of these yet, that you can grab a couple on your way out. We, I think we have a stack of them um, in that little entryway um, on that little table. And these are a a great way that you can invite people to come and hear the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, Our heart and our hope and part of our mission here at Refuge Church is that so so those people who don't yet know the beautiful love of Christ demonstrated in the cross and in his death and resurrection might know it and might put faith in it. So that's what we pray for. We were here this past um, Tuesday praying for our Advent series. And if you're online joining um, us this morning, I hope that... You, you know we love you and we miss you. But you can use these, and on, on it are instructions to join us online. Some people are still maybe um, quarantined or they can't get out yet. Maybe they're just a little bit nervous to be in crowds. Um, well, we have instructions on these to join us online. So, um, but, um, but as you can see, we do have plenty of space. Um, and if we di- did get really full, we would just ask those people that are most active in our church or members in our church to just take a hike right now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you could go. We have other rooms with speakers set up, and we could put our guests in here. You know, so we have plenty of space um, for you to invite your loved ones. I hope that you will. Um, this morning from Jeremiah chapter 33, I'm reminded um, of that classic and really unmatched uh, story of Romeo and Juliet that most of you know Uh, know and have heard of or at least read maybe sometime in middle school or in high school. Um, He says, um, Juliet actually says this, this this famous line that you recall. She says, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. A beautiful line. Uh, Romeo Romeo and Juliet is a tragic love story and it reminds us of the gross consequence of racism and prejudice. Romeo and Juliet's family were bitter enemies, and it was only his name that got in the way of their love. So she says, what's in a name? If you were called anything else, you would still smell as sweet, like a rose, right? So she asked that question, and that that question that we love to hear, and it's so romantic when we hear it, what's in a name? Well, in the Bible, actually naming and names is a very important process. Um, They identify or describe who we are. 
They're not just trendy sorts of names that we like, right? Like, um, what's popular nowadays? Noah, right? Noel, things like this. I don't even know. I don't know what I'm talking about. But um, so a lot of times in our culture, we just kind of grab onto names that we think are cool sounding or whatever. Someone famous has it or someone that we respect has that name, Tom, right? Brady. Um, but in the Bible, it's, it's so much different. Um, it's, the names are meant to describe who a person is, their character, the, the content of their soul, of their life. So that many people actually in Scripture, when they come to faith in Yahweh or come to faith in Jesus Christ in the New Testament, they have their name changed, right? Um, so Abram's name is changed to Abraham, and Jacob's name is changed to Israel, right? Saul in the New Testament, his name is changed to Paul. The significance of names shouldn't escape us, I think, in this Advent season and who Christ is. Who is Jesus? That's the question I want to try to answer to you this, for you this morning. Who is this babe wrapped in swaddling clothes? Not just his name. Who is he? Who, not, not just what did he do or what did he say, but who is he? Who is this Jesus? What's in his name? Our text tells us, if you, if you found it sort of buried in there, this is the name by which he will be called, referencing Christ. The Lord, our righteous Savior. Oh, that, that name says a lot about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Lord. He's Yahweh. He's God. He's not just a baby, in other words. He is the Lord. He is, our, he is righteous. He is altogether good. There is nothing evil or sinful in him. He is pure, like that white candle symbolizes. And he is our Savior. He's not just here to show off, to say, See, told you so. Told you I'm real. Should have listened to me. Right? No, he's here to save. He is the Lord, our righteous Savior. You need to be saved this morning. See, so I think all of us feel like we answer that question yes from time to time. We don't always answer, like, why we need to be saved is different. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe someone is sick in you, and you, you need someone to rescue you, to heal you. Well, there's a, there's a greater salvation that we need that Christ su su supplies. And I hope by the end of this service, if you're a Christian, your heart will be encouraged with what you hopefully already know. And if you're not a Christian, that you'll come to faith in Jesus Christ. If there were no Jesus, we would have no idea about who God is. We might have an idea that God exists, but we wouldn't know what he's like. We wouldn't know what he expects. We wouldn't know if we could have a relationship with him or not. We would be in the dark. All our speculation about God and who he is would be just that, speculation. The reason that we can know that there is a God and that we can know what he's like is because of Jesus Christ. Because he appeared to us 2,000 years ago and said, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. So this morning, I want to talk to you about Jesus, not just about what he did, <clears throat> or that he was born, or the events surrounding his birth. I want to talk to you about his impact and his identity, those two things. His impact 
and his identity. Jesus and his followers made some pretty amazing claims about who Jesus is, as we'll see in a moment. But right now, I want to pause a little bit and just talk about historically what has been the impact of Jesus of Nazareth. You might disagree completely with what he said about himself or what his apostles said about him, about him but you can't agree, disagree, I don't think, historically with his impact. Consider the words of Philip Schaff, a scholar and church historian. He said this about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. Without the eloquence of school, never went to school, he spoke such, such words of life as were never spoken before or since. Can you imagine? Without writing a single line, never wrote a book, never wrote an article, never had a journal. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and sweet songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Isn't that incredible? Born in a manger, you know, I, I once read that you could reconstruct the entire Bible just from the writings of the, the early church fathers. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that's how, that's how passionate people have been about Jesus Christ. Born in a manger and crucified as a malefactor, born in a manger, right, that's in a stall. No one's born there except poor people. And he's crucified as a criminal, a malefactor. Now he rules a spiritual empire, one-third of the inhabitants of the globe. The annals of history produced no other example of such complete and astounding success in spite of the absence, absence of those material, social, literary, and artistic powers which successful people normally have, indispensable to success for a mere man. Christ stands alone among all the heroes of history and presents to us an insolvable problem. And here's what it is. Unless we admit him to be more than man, even the eternal Son of God. You see, that's our problem. If he's not that, who is he? Another scholar, Paul Little, says this. In an obscure village in Palestine, 2,000 years ago, a child was born in a stable. His birth split time in two. It changed its calendar and tailored its customs. Unthinkably, we declare his birth on every letter we write in every legal document and every date book. On the day we set aside to remember his birth, Christmas, streets, malls, cinemas, athletic centers, courthouses, schools, colleges, all of these are starkly empty and churches are full. The impact of Jesus Christ is without comparison. Now how about one more for you? Consider the words of Napoleon Bonaparte, one of the greatest generals and military commanders to ever live. He says this about Jesus. I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and every other religion the distance of infinity. Everything in him astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his will confounds me. 
Between him and everyone else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. The nearer I approach, the more carefully I examine. Everything remains grand, of a grandeur which overpowers. His religion is a revelation from an intelligence which certainly is not of man. One can absolutely find nowhere but in him alone the imitation or the example of his life. Isn't that an incredible line? Where can you find an example of the virtuous life like Christ's? We all fall short of it. All of us. Everyone in human history does. One can absolutely find nowhere but in him I read that. I search in vain in history to find similar to Jesus or anything which can, appro which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor ages nor nature offer me anything which I, which I am able to compare it or to explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. That's Napoleon. Friends, who will deny the impact of Jesus of Nazareth? He is unmatched. This alone, this fact alone, should cause us to ask a very serious question. All of us, who is he? Some of us believe certain things because we're Christians. But I want to invite you, those of you who might be watching online, or those of you who might be sitting here this morning, to ask this very real and very important question, who is Jesus? Because the way that you answer that question is the most important question you will ever answer in your life. Who is he? <clears throat> Dr. Robert Stein was commenting, he's a Bible scholar, and he commented on the importance of who Christ is. He says this, On the lips of anyone else, the claims of Jesus would appear to be evidence of gross egomania. For Jesus clearly implies that the entire world revolves around him. <laughs> and, what's more, that the fate of all mankind is dependent on their acceptance or rejection of him. Who Jesus is, because of this, because of these bold claims, who he is, is as important, if not more important, than what he said. Because if who he is doesn't match what he said. We can't listen to him. We can't believe him. So who is he? Jesus Christ certainly doesn't fit the mold of other religious leaders. Dr. Thomas Schultz said, not one recognized religious leader, not one. Listen, to this is powerful. Comb <clears throat> history books, and you won't find them. Not one recognized religious leader, not Moses, not Paul, not Buddha, not Mohammed, not Confucius, not any of them has ever claimed to be God. And that is with the accept exception of Jesus Christ. Christ is the only religious leader that has ever claimed to be God and the only individual, this is the important part of this sentence, listen to this. Christ is the only religious leader that has ever claimed to be God and the only individual who has ever convinced a great portion of humanity that he is. <laughs> How could a man make other people think that he's God? How could I do, if I wanted to trick you, 
make you think I'm God in the flesh, what, what sorts of things would I have to do? Well, I would have to, I think, demonstrate great power, even over death. I would have to demonstrate a, an untouched and unmatched virtue, wouldn't I? I would have to show a certain amount of all of the virtues of humanity, whether they be justice or mercy or compassion. I would have to demonstrate those to you perfectly if I were to, be, to convince you that I was God. And now we start seeing a picture of Jesus Christ who demonstrated these things perfectly. His teachings were ultimate and final, above those of Moses and the prophets. He never added, consider this, he never added any afterthoughts or revisions. You ever read a book about something and then 10 years later they have to rewrite it because it was wrong? Oops, let's revise that. He never added any afterthoughts or revisions. He never retracted or changed. He never guessed or supposed, hmm, I wonder. He never spoke with uncertainty. I think this might be the case, but I'm not sure. Friends, this is also contrary to any human teacher that has ever lived. But the reason that far outshadows all others, the reason which led to his execution was his incredible claim that he, who on the surface seemed to be a carpenter's son, quote, among the shavings and sawdust of his father's workshop, was in reality God in the flesh. That's why he was killed. So let's look at who Jesus claimed to be. What did Jesus say about himself? Is an important thing to learn about him. What was Jesus' own words about who he was? If, you were asked, if I was asked to describe to you who I am, I might give you, a, you know, some pretty things and some nice things. I'm good at this. And, but then you know, if I'm really honest and I start getting real, you might not stay in this church anymore. <laughs> right? like, I am a very flawed human individual. But what did Jesus say about himself? Well, consider his trial. He's arrested by the, Jewish le by, by the religious leaders, <clears throat> and, in, and he, they're asking Jesus some questions. In Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 64, the high priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now listen to this sort of cryptic answer. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And listen, you say, okay, well, that sounds kind of like maybe similar with, to what the Bible says we get when we're saved, right? We come with him and clouds and all this. So, but listen, look at, the, look at their reaction. The high priest in verse 63 tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all con condemned him as deserving of death. They accused him of blasphemy. In other words, what they were saying is that Jesus is making himself out to be God. And that is why they believed he was deserving of death. Now, how does this all say that? You might miss something unless you know that Jesus actually is claiming Daniel chapter 7 in verse 13 and 14. He is saying when he responded to the high priest, he's saying, I am the man of Daniel chapter 7, and they knew it. These guys knew their Bibles. They knew what he was quoting. 
And this is what it says in Daniel chapter 7. In my vision, there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. See the similarity here? He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations, and, and here's the kicker, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see, Jesus quite clearly is claiming, I am the, the son of man of Daniel chapter 7, the one worthy of your worship, because I indeed am God in the flesh. Blasphemy was the only charge against Jesus. It was the one that led him to the crucifixion. It wasn't because he healed people on the Sabbath. It wasn't because of his Sermon on the Mount. And it wasn't because he plucked grains of corn when he wasn't supposed to. Lots of people did that that didn't get killed for it. Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh, and they didn't like it. Unique in his trial is not his actions, but who he says he is. It's what condemned him to death. Jesus, number two, claimed equality with the Father. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. We are not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. There are some people, it's astounding to me, that say Jesus never said he was God. Yes, he did, many times. To see him, he claimed, in John chapter 14, is to see God himself. Listen to these audacious claims, unless they're true. John chapter 14, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Show us God. We want to see God like Moses, right? Hide us in the cleft of the rock. We want, him, we want God to pass over us. And this was Jesus' reply. Jesus said to him, have I been with you for so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Let me say it like this, because this is what he meant. If you've seen me, you've seen God. How can you say, show us the Father? You've already seen him. That's, that's the third thing that we can note. How about this one, though? Number four, Jesus expected to be worshipped. <laughs> when Satan... Do you remember in Matthew chapter 4, if you're kind of new to the Bible, you might not know this story, but Jesus was baptized and he goes into the wilderness and he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. The Bible says that Satan comes to test him, to tempt him, to sin, right? What did Satan tell him to do? Satan said, Jesus, bow down and worship me. An angel, a fallen angel. He says, Jesus, bow down and worship me. And this is Jesus' reply. You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone you shall serve, Matthew 4.10. You don't worship, in scripture, you don't worship anything but God. We see the, the apostle John, when he's receiving the revelation, you know, that last book of the Bible that's kind of hard to understand. When he receives the revelation from these angels, he sees these angels, you know what he does? They're so glorious and wonderful, he starts to worship them. And you know what the angels do? Get up. My boss is watching. Don't worship me. Worship God. We're not God. You are not supposed to worship. It's in the first commandment, right? Yet Jesus was expected to be worshipped. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, 
In John chapter 9, verse 38, Then the man said, Lord, I believed, and he, I believe, and he worshipped him. In the text that we, read to, um, that we just read in Daniel chapter 7, all the nations of the earth gather around his throne and worship him alone. Jesus offers no rebuke because he believed himself to be and claimed to be God in the flesh. But what about his followers? Okay, that's, that's Jesus' words, but what did his followers claim him to be? John the Baptist, Paul, Peter, Thomas, John, the writer to the he Hebrews, all agree with this claim, that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. I want to give you two examples, one from Paul and then one from Hebrews. Okay, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, this is what it says. He, that is Christ, is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. An incredible statement that we could study for weeks, but let me just say this. Jesus created all things. If Jesus is a creature, this Bible verse is not true. The Bible doesn't say here that Jesus created all things except himself. It says he created all things visible. It actually labors to give us the point that there's nothing that has been created that wasn't created by Jesus Christ. By implication, Christ is God, the creator. How about the writer to the Hebrews? He says this boldly in chapter 1, verse 8. But, the son of, but of the Son of Man, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's quoting, by the way, Psalm chapter 45, verse 6. The book of Hebrews, who the writer remains elusive to us, but at least he claims the, of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So according to Christ, and the claims that Christ made, Christ, there, he's not just a baby born in a manger. He wasn't just a man that taught nice things or healed blind people. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. But what, is his, what, are, what do his works teach about him? That's what his apostles said. That's what he said. But what about what he did? What can we see in the things that he does to show to us, to demonstrate to us even more fully that he is indeed God in the flesh. He works, his works, the things he did, are things that only God can do. Now we just read one of them, that he's the creator, so we won't continue with that one, but listen to this one. This one. Number one, first, he had the authority to forgive sins. Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes questioning their hearts, he is blaspheming, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, now understand this. In, in Psalm chapter 51, when we sin, it is, it is against God first. Against you and you only have I sinned, David said in Psalm 51. When we sin, it is first a sin against God. Now, this man who was born a paralytic had never sinned against Jesus, the human being. They were claiming that perhaps they, he sinned in his young life or 
Maybe something happened where he was paralyzed and it was so, someone else's sin. But Jesus, Jesus says, I forgive you. Jesus had no authority to do that unless indeed he was God. God alone, who, the one who is chiefly the one that we sin against. You see? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. By the way, he didn't show up for forgiven sins. He showed up because he wanted to walk. Forgiveness is a prerogative of God alone. So who is Jesus to dare to claim to forgive this man? So to prove that he had the authority to do this, he says, but, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Do you remember in Jeremiah, what's his name? The Lord, our righteous Savior. He is the Savior of our sin. Jesus Christ doesn't say you're forgiven in the name of someone else, like Peter did in Acts chapter 3. And by the way, what did Peter do? Who's the name that he rose people from, from their paralyzed form? In the name of Christ. Not in the name of himself or in the name of Moses, but in the name of Jesus. Peter did not have the authority to do this in himself, but Jesus did because he is the Lord, our righteous Savior. Amen? He is the source of life. Consider this as one of his marvelous works. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. To get life restored with God the Father because of our sin, we must go through Christ. He is the source of life. He didn't say he knew of the way. If you do this and dot this I and cross this T, you might end up making it. He said, no, I am the way and the truth and the life. Come through me. John chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So that John continues in 1 John 5, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Friends, Jesus wasn't just some instrument God used to create us. Our life depends on him. For in him, we, we see the, the Apostle Paul say in the book of Acts, in him we live and move and breathe. So that is the sustaining power of the life God gives. And who is the one that gives it to us? Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? That in him is life. Jesus exercised absolute authority, number three. In John chapter 5, verse 27, and he has given authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Friends, the Old Testament is clear that only God is judge of creation. It says this in Genesis 18, 25, Psalm chapter 50, verses 4 through 6, Psalm chapter 96, verse 13. It's endless. The reason the Father gives judgment to the Son is because the Son is God in the flesh. He wouldn't give that to any one of us. That, that authority to, to be a just judge and authority over all creation is handed over to Jesus Christ. And by this authority, Jesus claims, by the way, in the name of Jesus, through the authority of Jesus, he claims that he will raise the dead 
gather the nations before himself, sit on a throne of glory, judge the world, completely renovate it back to its paradise and bring the kingdom of God here. That's who Jesus is and that's his marvelous work. All of this should be enough for us, at least to know what the Bible says about Christ and who he is. But I want to add one more thing. And I want to close with the way that I started. I want to talk about his name. There are many names for Jesus in the Bible. I want to talk about just one. Son of man, son of God, son of David, on and on the list goes. But I want to, I want to talk about the one that's probably the most important one. The Bible calls Jesus over and over again, Yahweh. Okay? In the Bible, the name Yahweh is the incommunicable name of God. What that means is that we can, that name cannot be shared with anyone else because we are not God. So nothing else can be called this. Right? The, so for example, there are lots of kinds of dogs, right? You know, there, there are Rottweilers and there are Labrador Retrievers and they're all various shapes and sizes, but they're all, at the end of the day, a dog. Isn't that true? You, but you can't call a cat a dog. A cat is not a dog, right? Now, you can, you can take that title cat, and there are lots of different kinds of cats underneath it. But you can't call a squirrel a cat. You follow me? It's incommunicable. They can't share that name because they're different. They're not cats, and they're not dogs. Does that make sense? The name Yahweh belongs to God alone. It cannot be shared because we're not him. There are other names for God that can be shared. There's other names that mean Lord, for example, but small l, it means that you're a governor, that you have authority over men, right? You're a king or you're a president, what have you. But the name Yahweh is never shared with angels or with man, okay? It's the incommunicable name of God. It's the name that God has or possesses alone. It's the name, by the way, which he revealed himself to, the, to Moses at the burning bush, only he has this name. Only priests, this name was so sacred to the Jewish people that they weren't even allowed to say it. They couldn't even say the name Yahweh. Only priests could say his name in the temple. And when they wrote like in scripture, when they approached the name Yahweh in the text, they wouldn't even write the name. They would write symbols or, or put another name in because it was so sacred to them. The, the name Yahweh is a Hebrew name. It comes from the word haya, like almost like a karate chop, right? <laughs> it means to be or I am. It's where we get, it's the name of God from Exodus chapter 3. When Moses approached the burning bush and he said, what shall I call you? Tell them, he says, I am has sent you. It sounds kind of like a strange name. Right? No, no, a name we probably wouldn't name our first child. What is, it, what is God trying to say by giving himself this title, this name, I am? Well, the first thing, it indicates God's presence with his people. Right? That God is a present God. He exists. Right? But it also indicates that he is not past or future. He is timeless. He is. So in other words, he is life. It, 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 it indicates that he is eternal life. He's not bound 
to the material universe as we are. It also indicates that God is above all of his creation and that his creation is not him. In other words, I am, you're not. You see? So God is describing himself in a way that only God can describe himself without time, without comparison, right? And you know what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 58? He said, before Abraham was, I am. He claimed the name of Yahweh. Friends, you have to understand the ancient Near East, and the Hebrew culture at the time. For someone to do this was incredible. It was so incredible, by the way, I'll prove it to you, that they killed him. This is why they killed him. The the high priest said it himself. It's for this that we should execute him and put him to death. Before Abraham was, I am. You see, that's kind of bad grammar. If Jesus meant to say that, you know, I'm just, I'm really old. I'm some kind of angel, and I've, you know, I'm a few thousand years old, but I'm, I'm still a creation. He would have said before Abraham was, I was. Okay, that's better grammar, but that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus wasn't trying to say that he's some kind of old creation of God that's got all this great power. He's saying, I am God. Before Abraham was, I am. You know that, that um, I forget where it is in, in one of the Gospels, um, the, the, they're going to arrest him. Do you remember this? In the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're, they're asking, who is Jesus? And he says, what does he say? I am, and they all fall down as dead. This is the Greek equivalent, I am, to the divine name that we see used all throughout Scripture to refer to one, the one and only Lord, our God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, you'll see this on the screen. It reads this. So Isaiah gets this vision of heaven. Oh, this is beautiful. I hope that you hear this. Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet. He lived before the time of Jesus, and he gets this vision of heaven. God reveals himself to to Isaiah. And and you remember, woe is me, he says. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he, he knows he's in the righteous presence of God and that he doesn't deserve it, right? But it reads this in Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Yahweh, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Who's that? God. That's the short answer to that question. He got a vision of God on his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. No one will deny who that is. Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw Yahweh. Who did Isaiah see in that vision? The Lord God. But who else did he see? John chapter 12, Jesus said this. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. You see what they're saying there? Can you imagine this? Isaiah said this in Isaiah 6. He said this because he actually saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. They're claiming that the one that the prophet Isaiah saw in the, hev- in the heavens on the throne was no, no other person than Jesus Christ. Isaiah saw Jesus 
500 years before he was born in that little stable on that faithful day. Reigning as the eternal son of God. Who is Jesus? Oh, friends, he's more than just a baby born in the manger. He's more than just a baby that needed to learn how to talk and walk like you and me. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the Lord, our righteous Savior. And because he is, we have hope. Because he is not just some man or not just some smart guru that gave us good advice on how to live. He actually is our Savior. And that matters. Dr. Baderwolf said this, a man who can read the New Testament and not see, <clears throat> excuse me, a man who can read the New Testament and not see that Christ claims to be more than a man can look over the sky at high noon on a cloudless day and not see the sun. <laughs> he and others who knew him directly claimed it. It was implied by his words, works, and titles that he is God in the flesh is the clear testimony of scripture and proof perfect that these claims are true lie in his resurrection. Because Jesus is alive from the dead, we know that what he said wasn't just the ravings of a madman. Friends, because Jesus is more than a carpenter, more than a child, because he is indeed God, it means that he is Lord, our righteous Savior. Isn't that the best news of all? And that's what we celebrate during Advent. That's our hope. That, G that God came in the form of a man to save us, and that gives us hope, the hope of eternal life. If he is God and he is near, if he is with us, and if he is bent on saving us, if he is indeed the giver of life because he has life in himself, friends, that is indeed all of our hope. I hope that you agree. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you so much for the advent of hope. We thank you for who Jesus is. We thank you that it wasn't just a claim. It wasn't just the ravings of a madman. But Jesus Christ is indeed God in the flesh and we know that because he rose from the dead. God, we thank you that that's what Christmas introduces to us. Not just a, a nice, cute little child that grew up to be a very wise man that was kind and taught us how to live. He is those things. Oh, but God, he's more. He is the Lord, our righteous Savior. And friend, if you don't know, if you're watching online or if you're here this morning, come to Christ on bended knee in humble repentance. Cast your sins on him at the foot of the cross and trust that the God-man Jesus Christ died and was risen for your sin so that you too could have eternal life. Come to him, cry out to him for his forgiveness in Christ and he will give it. And God, for the rest of us, thank you so much for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one whose glory filled the temple, the one who sits on the throne, to him be honor and glory and thanks, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.